Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santos here, your neighborhood-friendly pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. We've been having some fun the last few weeks getting all sciency. <laughs> That's what we do. It's, I'm, I'm glad uh, to see that we got a little deep. Makes me happy. I'm still riding the high off our neurovirologist interview the other week. I'm a, I'm super, super proud of our medical school alum and seeing what they're doing. A person like that coming out of Hopkins and being specialized at the CDC is awesome. But the other part of it was the topic was just so fascinating. And I learned some brand new stuff that I had not even considered when thinking about a patient with Ebola. It reminded me that there is one segment of this show that we've really, by and large, let lapse this year, Santosh. Oh, it's true. And I was just, I was so ashamed of myself because it's been forever since we have gone around the world in 80 plagues. (laughs) I I think it's time to go ahead and jump on our, you know, Jules Verne-like mythical balloon and start our travels back up again. Absolutely. I would hate for anybody to think I've been asleep at the wheel. (laughs) There are wheels on balloons? I I may have lost the metaphor, (laughs) but, you know, you snooze... You snooze, you lose. That's, that's true. I was going to say maybe we're all full of hot air. <laughs> all right. Well, this week, the plague we're going to cover is sleeping sickness, <sighs> which is perfect since... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we're not talking about like, I'm tired. <laughs> this is going to be a parasitic infection that makes people sleep until they die. So We know that many of you do tend to fall asleep to our soothing, soothing voices. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's mostly something. <laughs> so as we hop into our hot air balloon and set off to search out the source of sleeping sickness in sub-Saharan settings. <laughs> Very well done, sir. Indulge me at least, if we're going to be old-timey, you have to let me go back once more to ancient Egypt, one of clearly the only two historical periods I know anything about. (laughs) Which, on the by, I'm going to warn everybody, uh, it has nothing to do with the actual discovery of the little parasite that we're going to talk about. But you have to link everything back to some papyrus, so go for it. Well, I would hesitate to say nothing, because... Although the specific iteration of sleeping sickness that we're going to talk about today was not present in ancient Egypt, they did have a form. And the fact that the Egyptians of the Old Kingdom were known to keep their cattle together with game animals, they did this. Game animals, of course, being things like, well, not hippos. You don't breed hippos for food. (laughs) You're talking about fowls. Ancient Egyptians did this not because they were inexperienced in breeding, but that way they could successfully rear animals that were resistant to sleeping sickness because domestic animals are much more susceptible than wild. And we find some more evidence for trypanosomiasis, which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. shortly, coming from the veterinary papyrus of the Cahoon papyri. Usually I'm referencing the Ebers Mm -hmm. papyrus. 
but the Cahoon one covers animal husbandry and veterinary medicine. And that's not like and marrying cattle... animals. That's taking care of animals. Well, <laughs> look, to each their own, and the Egyptians had a lot of animal-headed gods, so really, who am I to judge? <laughs> but... A cattle disease described as nagana that would lead to very lethargic sleeping animals was described and treated. And there was an ointment made from the fat of particular birds used as a treatment against the bite of flies to present or to prevent this nagana disease. And that sounds very similar to African sleeping sickness. And I say African because we're going to go briefly around the world before we get back to Africa. One of the first historical records on human infection is by the famous Arabian geographer, I guess famous if you're into maps and cartography, which, (laughs) hey, good news for you guys, Abu Abdallah Yakut from the 12th century. During his journey into Africa, he described visiting the country of gold an underground village whose inhabitants and even dogs were just skin and bones and asleep, which is really similar to the sleeping sickness epidemic that was found in Uganda at the turn of the 20th century. Now, we don't know where in Africa the country of gold was at this time. Wakanda but forever. That's right. It was just, it was vibranium protection. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just, a, uh, that's going to happen <laughs> forever from now on if we talk about like a a city of gold in Africa or anything. It's I'm not I'm not going to apologize for that. But it does sound very like adventure movie Indiana Jones-esque, right? You walk into this village where everyone, the humans, the people, everything is just right. asleep and skin and bones and ruins and largely starved to death, which is likely what Sleeping Beauty and Rip Van Winkle <laughs> would have looked like, truthfully. Yeah, they uh, they wouldn't have lasted too long. We don't really have the energy stores to just kind of like snooze forever. We started in ancient Egypt. I figured I'd take a quick swing through the Victorian yeah, yeah, era. Because in 1843, a scientist named David mm-hmm. Ruby, working in Paris, discovered an organism in frog blood. And because the swimming motion of this organism looked like the action of a corkscrew, which I'm sure he thought because he was French, and of course they'd go to wine, he called it trypanosoma sanguinis, which comes from the Greek word trypano, meaning auger or screw-like, and soma, meaning body, and sanguinis from the Latin word for blood. So a screw-like body in the blood. Believe it or not, Josh, this was the second instance of seeing these little guys swimming around. If you go just back a couple of years, there was a doctor named Valentine who in 1841 actually saw these things in the blood of a trout. And he found a different trypanosome which infected fish. He had seen yet another species in in the blood of a trout. And trypanosomes were also described from the blood of field mice, of voles, of rats. But largely since it was all being discovered in woodland creatures, they were considered mere curiosities having no economic, medical, or veterinary importance. In, in fact, some people thought that it was just kind of like a commensal organism, meaning that like these creatures just have this parasite floating around in there. All that changed in... 1880, when Griffith Evans, an English veterinarian serving in the Punjab region in India, started discovering these same trypanosomes in horses, mules, and camels, so domestic animals, suffering from a fatal wasting disease that the Indians called sura. Mm, okay. And it was found that taking blood from sick animals and putting it into healthy animals would recreate the disease. 
So the vector at that time was found to be a horsefly or a biting stable fly, which wasn't discovered for another 20 years after that original sickness. Yeah, it blew away into like the 1900s before they, they found the actual fly originally in Africa. In 1892, Alphonse Leverin, who had discovered the malaria parasite, summarized everything that was known about trypanosomes from ancient Egypt all the way up till now <laughs> in a sum total of 11 pages and 18 references. Nice. So really not a lot of material to go on. It was quite compressed at the time because, you know, we were still, Josh, learning about things like germ theory and the fact that there were organisms which would enter into a bigger organism like a host and cause pathology and that such a thing was transmissible. It was a cool kind of chain of discovery that he summarized in those 11 pages. Eukaryotic pathogens like trypanosomes and malaria were one of the first to be looked at in this manner because you can see them with like a low magnification microscope. You know, you might ask yourself, why haven't we heard about this in the US? There's some pretty lethargic areas. <laughs> That's true. There are some sleepy parts of our great nation. More than 80% of the cases of sleeping sickness in the world have been located in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And three major outbreaks have occurred in recent documented history. One from 1896 to 1906 in Uganda and the Congo mm -hmm. Basin, uh, which I, I think is the Bokunsa area. I'm probably mispronouncing uh. that. Our apologies to um, all the Congolese out there listening to us right now. There could be. You don't oh, no, know. no. I'm being dead serious. <laughs> there was also an outbreak in 1920 as well as in 1970 in several African countries, both in East and North and South and West Africa. And, you know, interestingly, for all that we have still managed to gather about this, by and large, sleeping sickness is classified as a neglected tropical disease. Yeah. It is a bastard stepchild of infectious diseases. It is. So, Santosh, why is well, that? Well, it's kind of sad. Um, when when you say neglected tropical disease, a lot of the time that designation comes from developed world countries who contribute their literature to agencies like the WHO and the CDC. And the idea is that it's seen with such slight frequency or small frequency, or another way to put it is that the disease footprint is so small that it's not worth kind of like focusing on in terms of, uh, you know, trying to find a cure or eliminate. If you take something like malaria, for instance, which has a massive footprint and affects, you know, Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, the entire continent of Africa and all of South America, and it results in millions of deaths, especially with kids. We're looking at, say, in 2014, a total number of cases of sleeping sickness uh, amounting to about 20,000. Now, when your caseload is that few, that kind of drive to, you know, get a good diagnostic modalities underway and get good treatments underway, or even try to eliminate the disease, that same kind of oomph isn't there. So there are actually several diseases like this, which have been brought under a family of neglected tropical diseases and are trying to bring those family of diseases into the limelight so that we can say, hey, these are important too and we should be addressing. Here on Travel Medicine, we're going to let those neglected cousins out of the closet <laughs> or the attic, wherever they've been locked up, and make sure that we continue to shine an occasional spotlight on them. 
when we do remember to do our 80 plays. Yeah, yeah. And I should say, Josh, I, I think we're in a really good place with that. So 2012, the WHO Neglected Tropical Diseases Roadmap, um, they actually convened a committee and created a, a stepwise approach to eliminating sleeping sickness as a public health problem by the year 2020. Whether or not they hit the goal is yet to be seen. You know, if I were to ask you, well, not you, because you're an infectious disease specialist, (laughs) but if I were to ask the common person, what, if anything, they know about sleeping sickness, what do you suppose would be some of the go-to talking points? (laughs) They're going to go ahead and probably say it's in Africa, and you sleep a lot, and then maybe you die. Okay. Do you think that the average person would be able to identify the vector? More than likely not. I don't. I, I think even if you name the vector, they wouldn't be able to like point to a picture of it or anything like that. Oh, a picture? Forget about yeah. <laughs> it. But I think you are underestimating the average bar trivia patron oh, okay. and listener of travel medicine. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the main vector for the African version of sleeping sickness, of which I can't think of any other kinds, (laughs) is is the tsetse fly. T-S-E, T-S-E. It's fun to say, terrible to get. (laughs) Unless, of course, it's not carrying trypanosomes, in which case, bite away, fly, and I will crush you. Right, and and we will will get into the likelihood of getting it from A bug blight, yeah. but a blood blight. <laughs> I'm terrible today. So, Josh, you mentioned African sleeping sickness versus, you know, what else is out there? As we talk about it, African trypanosomiasis causes African sleeping sickness. Um, and this is one set of species that's in Africa. The other trypanosomiasis is called American trypanosomiasis, and that causes a different disease called Chagas disease. And so we're actually going to be leaving that set of trypanosomes alone for this episode. That's right. We still have a few more plagues to make it through. I think we are almost up to maybe 10. (laughs) I don't know. I stopped counting. We'll get to 80, I swear. Just, you know, keep listening. The tsetse fly is a large brown biting fly that is both a host and a vector for the trypanosome parasites. And the short version, which I will let you go into the longer one in a moment, Mm -hmm. Santosh, but the entire life cycle of the fly is about three weeks. And in addition to the bite of the tsetse fly, the disease itself can be transmitted, although much, much less commonly, from mother to child, Mm -hmm as in crossing the placenta or infecting right. the fetus. Right, and this is rare or, enough where we have like single case reports. We don't even have like a compilation. So we know it's possible, but it's also highly uncommon, as well as in laboratories, which are accidental infections, like handling the blood of an infected person or organ transplantation. Mm-hmm. This is also pretty uncommon, little more than mother to child, but largely among the population of people who work with this disease and study it, and blood transfusion. Again, none of these are very likely, certainly with the preventative efforts that have been taken, but all of them are possible methods of transmission. I found this one of the most fascinating things, and it was not an intuitive connection for me. Do you know what makes trypanosomiasis make people so sleepy? (laughs) I do, but I want to hear you say it. So there is a compound produced by the trypanosomes called tryptophal. And tryptophal (laughs) is a chemical compound that induces sleep in humans 
produced not only by the trypanosome parasite, but also by alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> it is found in wine as a secondary product of ethanol fermentation. Yeah, yeah. The exact same compounds made by this parasite is what you find in wine and why you need to take a nap after heavy <laughs> drinking. <laughs> yep, but this little parasite manufactures it kind of just by itself. But don't drink parasites, no. <laughs> people. It's just never a good idea. Generally speaking, no. Although we can come back to that subject at some point. Way sidebar. But there are currently trials that are trying to move forward, allowing people to drink worms to suppress their inflammatory bowel disease. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go drink worms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in rare and isolated cases so far, it seems to work. <laughs> Fine. Use your science to put my horror and repulsion. <laughs> Don't worry. Nobody's going to feed you a worm. Unless it's a gummy worm. They can't see me rubbing my hands together sinister like can they? Well, there's three different trypanosomes that cause African sleeping sickness, but really only two that we're really going to be discussing mm -hmm. today. Uh, one is T. gambiensi, mm -hmm. which causes a chronic condition that can remain in a passive phase for months or years before symptoms emerge, and the infection itself can last about three years before death occurs. And the other, and that one is found more in uh, West and Central Africa, near perhaps Gambia, mm -hmm. and or at least what was formerly yeah, known yeah. as Gambia. Um, and the other one is known as Trypanosoma brucei. 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 Being uh -huh. Trypan Brucei, thank you. Uh, Brucey, you know, hey, hey Brucey. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Brucey. What are you falling asleep you on go. me for? <laughs> um, Trypanosoma Brucei rodensi. And Rodis for yeah, Rodis. Exactly. Thank so, you. Uh, just to be clear, Josh, both of these are the same species. Both of these are Trypanosoma brucei. So you have one of them, which is subspecies or, uh, Gambiensi, and the other one, which is subspecies Rhodesiensi. And Rhodesiensi is found in East and Southern Africa in the territory formerly known as Rhodesia. That's not like the singer known <laughs> as Prince. Rhodesia has since become Zimbabwe. And, oh, this is going to oh, bother no. me. It shares Victoria. It shares Victoria oh, Falls. Uh, you're talking about Botswana? No, no, that's uh, not it. Uh, Nambia. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think it's mostly Zim. Okay. You know what? Let's just okay, say Zimbabwe. If you want to mark in and out. No, screw it. I'll just let them all. Okay. I'll cut it later. <laughs> <laughs> so Rhodesiense in East and Southern Africa, the territory formerly known as Rhodesia, Unlike the territory formerly known as Prince, uh, Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. <laughs> Sorry. People who care about this right now is like colonial revisionist bastards. No. Wakanda forever. <laughs> Trypanosoma rhodesiense is the acute form of the disease, and death tends to occur within months with the symptoms emerging within weeks. So it's more virulent and faster developing than TB gambiense. And the long coexistence of both tsetse flies in these regions, as well as game animals, like, you know, rhino, hippo, and may explain... Well, I'm talking about game animals. Oh, Cattle are not game. True. They're domestic. Game animals tend not to suffer from this disease. And that might... 
and they've both been around Africa for a long time, and it may explain why most African wildlife is tolerant of trypanosomiasis. They become infected by the parasite, but don't really have... On occasion, they may show up with like fever or something like that. They might get acutely sick, but they don't get, they don't get that second phase of illness where the parasite gets to the central nervous system and starts causing the actual sleeping sickness. And I think that's a perfect time to start going into this. So I will give you one last historical fact and then set you off in our hot air balloon to teach us about the symptoms of sleeping sickness. And unfortunately, some of the learning and studies into this really came out of initially the slave trade. Uh, First accounts of sleeping sickness where it's coming from a lot of ship doctors and medical officers who worked for slave trading companies. And as sleeping sickness caused increasing losses, both ship owners and slave traders pressed their ship doctors and companies to investigate this disease. So in 1734, the English naval surgeon John Atkins published the first accurate medical report on African sleeping sickness, including its symptoms, But he described only the neurological symptoms of late-stage disease, whereas the English physician Thomas Winterbottom, who has a hilarious name. I love that name name so, so much. Isn't that such a British name? Oh, yes, Lord Winterbottom. Winterbottom, Winterbottom, Um, lots of bottoms. Dr. Winterbottom published a report in 1803 that referred to some characteristic physical findings of the disease, swollen lymph glands along the back of the neck, that are found in early stages. And he said that Arabian slave traders would also recognize this characteristic sign that then took on his name, Winterbottom's sign. And any slave or captive who was recognized to have these swollen le- neck lymph nodes, uh, the slave traders would refrain from buying them because they knew that they were likely to be suffering from the disease. So that's a little bit of a dark historical moment. But it did lead to a fairly significant physical finding. So, Santosh, why don't you tell us what does sleeping sickness actually oh, look sure. like? Um, so, uh, here, here are the stages. You get bitten by a tsetse fly. And the little trypanosoma, um, which if you look at it under a microscope, um, if, you, if you think of a little dash with a little comma coming off of it, which is its little flagellum. And so that'll go into your bloodstream. You do have uh, an inflammatory lesion. Uh, it's called a chancre, where you got the initial bite about a week or so. And so this stage one disease, you'll have fever. Your spleen may swell up, and that's called splenomegaly. And you'll have that lymphadenopathy that you talked about. So you have lymph nodes that are swollen in your neck. That really specific sign that you talked about um, along the back of the neck. So if you if you kind of feel not along your spine, but along the kind of the sides of your neck, skull bumps out and then kind of go down, it should be relatively smooth, but there are lymph nodes hiding under there. And those can swell up when you have stage one disease. Your white count is up and maybe your red blood cell count is down. So you have anemia and platelet cells might drop a little bit. But if you were to take like a biopsy, you'll have arteritis, inflammation of your actual blood vessels. So at this stage, if you haven't told someone that, hey, I went to Africa, I may have gotten bitten by tsetse flies. If you're here in the United States and you haven't told your doctor that, 
they won't even consider African sleeping sickness during this time because there's a bunch of other diseases which could mimic this, most prominently actually malaria. Which is one that we are all you know, much more trained to look for. But malaria doesn't tend to have these severe right. swelling of lymph nodes. And when I say severe, I mean, they really do look like exactly. huge winter bottoms. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, if if you have that classic winter bottom sign in that what we call the posterior cervical triangle, which is right at the back of your neck, then, you know, you can kind of clue in right there that you should be looking for African trypanosomiasis. But if you have someone who's, uh, you know, hasn't heard of it or hasn't thought of it, then it may be a curiosity. If you don't have that sign, then this disease can look quite nonspecific in this early phase. Now, the early phase tends to begin one to three weeks after the bite. And much like malaria, which you mentioned earlier, Santosh, the fever that comes with it is very intermittent with attacks lasting from a day to a week and then separated by intervals of a few days to a month or longer. So you may come back, be feeling fine, and then maybe a few weeks later, ah, you got a little bit of a fever, some neck swelling, but you think, well, I've been back from vacation or work for, you know, for quite a while. I would have no reason to associate these. This is why giving an important and thorough travel history to your doctor is so crucial. And during that fever time, especially, it's really important to... Uh, talk to your doctor about this as a potential because um, this is when you can actually get a a diagnosis because you need to actually see the parasites on a blood smear. And it's, it's quite easy to see them if you have parasitemia or if you have a big lymph node, because if you aspirate the liquid out of the node, or if you check the blood, you know, when you're spiking after several blood samples, you can actually just see the parasite and the diagnosis is kind of a slam dunk. If left untreated, this early stage disease will often overcome the host's defenses and can then cause fairly extensive damage. And You know, it can get into your endocrine, your cardiac, your renal, a whole bunch of different systems. And then weeks to months later, and and I want to emphasize weeks to months (laughs) And we're talking about during those weeks and months, you feel fine. With those intermittent fevers. You're like, ah, I seem to have come down with another one of those colds again. Meh, you know. So then you'll start to see the beginning of the second stage. And that's the one where people are really thinking of a stereotypical sleeping sickness with confusion, poor coordination, numbness, and trouble sleeping. So, Santosh, what is... The parasites have, at this point, invaded the central nervous system. One of the interesting things that happen is your circadian rhythm can often flip. So you'll be sleepy in the daytime, and you'll actually feel more awake at night. And this has nothing to do with jet lag. You'll you'll actually feel kind of oh my do I God, no, you're just a vampire. Sickness? Stop it. The other thing which I think a lot of people have nowadays is indifference. <laughs> it's where you just feel kind of meh. <laughs> and I know that sounds really silly, but it's absolutely true that like. These people who have this late stage sleeping sickness cannot be startled in any way. There's nothing that shocks them. Um, even if it's something like the death of a loved one or imminent danger. Or the latest or, Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just drowse off, which, you know, may happen to us regardless of African sleeping sickness. But this is one of the, the heralds of this disease. Speech can become kind of halting and indistinct. And a lot of people will describe that the gaze 
just becomes kind of listless. If you look at someone kind of looking around the room, you can see that their eyes move quite a bit from spot to spot. And this tends to go away where the gaze just kind of becomes uniform in one direction. And then as the parasites kind of get deeper into the gray matter, which is in the center of the brain, you can get symptoms a little bit like Parkinson's or Huntington's, where you have involuntary movements or trouble with coordination if it invades the cerebellum in the back of the head. So at this point, you're kind of in dire straits because the patient will have continued neurological impairment until they get slow, so sleepy they do not want to wake up anymore. At this point, they can die. However, if they have rhodesiensis, which is a little bit more acute, you can also die from things like congestive heart failure or arrhythmias. Like you were saying, Josh, it can invade the heart. That death can be much quicker without the central nervous system disease. So that can be kind of a different way to go where you don't actually have the sleeping part of the sleeping sickness, but it's still quite deadly. So, Well, you can still become almost catatonic in some ways because a lot of these people will develop right. Parkinson-like Yeah, so where, to the point where you don't have control over your motor functions anymore. You can't get up from a lying posture. Masked faces where the the face really doesn't show any more facial expression or cogwheel rigidity where even the slightest motion takes large amounts mm -hmm. of effort. Untreated infection causes death within months if it's rodiense, whereas gambiense may not cause death for several years. But in both cases, any damage caused in the neurological phase is irreversible. So all you're doing if you start treating during the neurological phase is basically preventing death, but you've already committed yourself to a certain amount of right. loss of function. You know, trying to treat as early as possible before you have any CNS symptoms is pivotal because we don't have a lot of good antiparasitics that will kill the trypanosomes. The ones that we do have for stage two disease actually carry with them their own level of mortality because they're not benign treatments. And let's talk a little bit more about diagnosis. You mentioned earlier that the best way is to find the parasite in a blood smear, ideally fluid or an aspirate taking from a blood or a lymph node or an infected joint. Are there any other tests or ways that you can yeah, identify so this? So first and foremost, you, you go for a lymph node as soon as you can. So you can try for the chancre, the bite spot, and try to find parasites there under the microscope. Um, and then you go for one of those big lymph nodes and you try to aspirate and put that on a slide and stain it with GEMSA, which is a, a specific type of purple stain on a microscope, and you look for the parasites. If you don't see that, then you get you don't stop at one blood sample. You do several blood samples to look for a smear. You can do different types of preparations to try to find the parasites in there. Much more likely to find the parasites during stage one of disease than in stage two, because during stage two, the parasites actually start to clear out of the bloodstream and focus more on the central nervous system. You can occasionally get it from bone marrow aspirates, but that's quite rare. If you can't find the parasites by that and you you really, really think this is sleeping sickness, you have to look in the cerebrospinal fluid, which is obtained by lumbar puncture. So you have to take that out and look for abnormalities in the parameters, as well as looking for parasites once again. There are modalities such as looking for antibodies against parasites, 
But this is one of those rare cases, Josh, where you really need to find the parasite in order to make a definitive diagnosis. You don't always need to make like a 100% diagnosis to start treatment if you really think this is what it is. But this is not one of these diseases where you can go for like an antibody test or an indirect test. You need to see the parasites. Now, there are a few blood tests that let you check dried blood for the parasite, but they're just not as sensitive. So ideally, you want, well, fresh blood. (laughs) Obviously, the major strategy we try and use to combat a lot of diseases is less about reaction and more about prevention. But vaccination has been largely thwarted by a superpower of the trypanosome, and that is the ability to undergo antigenic variations. So before you get too nerdy about the science here, son, let me break it down and you tell me how I do. So trypanosomes are surrounded by a little coat of armor that's made up of a bunch of different variant surface glycoproteins. You can imagine it like a bunch of differently colored balloons. Maybe parts are blue and parts are yellow and parts are red, and all of them are hiding that gooey, you know, parasitic (laughs) center. And these, these proteins will act to protect the parasites, like armor, from any lytic factors or defensive factors in human plasma. So the host's immune system will recognize glycoproteins present on the code of the parasite that lead to the production of different antibodies. So let's say your immune system recognizes, ah, there's the blue balloons. Let's pop the daylights out of those. And it gets rid of all the blue balloons and the parasites that are protected by blue balloons, gone. But maybe there's one that was protected by only half blue balloons and half yellow. Well, that's okay. Your immune systems recognize blue and yellow, but can it recognize blue and yellow and red and orange (laughs) and plaid and teal and all the Crayola colors? On the same one? Probably not. So since there are over 1,000 different possible surface coats and even more once you take into account the ability to recombine, the possibility of generating a universally recognized antibody or vaccine against human sleeping sickness is pretty remote. Yeah, I think that was beautifully said. Um, You got to think about it. Uh, in terms of, you know, these are little sugars attached to little proteins. But the, the idea here is when the antibody goes to attack a specific target, it'll eliminate all those targets. And all of a sudden, the remaining tiny, tiny few guys have a completely different look. It's completely unrecognizable to your immune system. And by the time your immune system can reset and start making a new set of antibodies, there's a whole new bloom of parasites. And eventually, and by the way, Josh, this is why you get fevers for a while and then your fevers go away. The parasitemia goes low and then you get fevers again and the fevers go away and the cycle will continue until a few of them kind of hide away in your brain where there isn't a ton of antibody activity. Um, you know, those immune cells which produce those antibodies. Because brain fever no, is really exactly. not something so you want to You don't have. want inflammatory cells just hanging out in the brain. So, it, you know, our, we are evolved to not have plasma cells and B cells go into the brain to attack with, with antibodies. And you really need those antibodies in order to suppress these parasites. Um, it's a brilliant way for these little guys to hide. It's... It, got to give him some respect for that it's it's basically parasitic plastic surgery in a mission impossible setting they just go ahead and rip their face off and have a whole brand new 
you know, identity ready to go. And because this happens so often, eventually the body just kind of isn't able to recognize the parasite till it gets up to your brain uh, to take it out. And by that time, it's hidden away. It's got what's called immune privilege because it's hiding in that little spot, um, you know, at your brain, which there there isn't a lot of inflammation and immune uh, activity going on. But for those of you who love biology, this is natural selection in real time right? Um, They have this ability to do this, but this is what you're doing is you're actively selecting the parasites with your immune system that are going to survive an onslaught. And then that selected population, which is now fit, grows back up. So I I think it's the coolest thing. Like If you want to point out evolution, it is happening in real time in a patient with African sleeping sickness. So now let's look at the treatment, which by and large is not much better than the disease. In 1904, a paper was published by the Canadian doctor Harold (laughs) Wolferstan Thomas and an Austrian zoologist, Anton Breinel, and they noted that the arsenic-based drug Atoxyl could cure experimentally infected animals. It was thought to be better than any other arsenic compounds tested so far and relatively atoxic. By the way, guys, you heard that correctly. Arsenic-based compounds. Now, we have done a whole episode a few seasons back on poisoning. There isn't much in terms of eukaryotes, which like arsenic. And this is a eukaryotic organism, so it's also going to hate arsenic. Yeah, so again, the initial treatment back in 1904 was this drug called atoxyl, felt to be atoxic. This was later proven wrong as it found out that atoxyl (laughs) tended to blind a lot of people taking it. In between 1904 and the early 1920s, a couple additional drugs were discovered, one Mm by Bayer, Bayer, that's right, the makers of aspirin, Bayer, and that was known as suramin and another known as pentamidine. And these, even to this day, so from 1920 to today, remain the drug of choice for treatment of early phase disease, meaning those fevers, the winter bottom sign, the arthritis, some of the general irritation, the things before yeah, it gets and, uh, across the blood Compared to what we're about barrier. to talk about, pentamidine and serumin, they're, they're gentle. <laughs> you're, you're not going to have horrible, horrible sickness by and large with pentamidine and serumin. And it's really nice because you can get on the disease early and hit it before you have to use the really toxic stuff. And we mean gentle, like going up in a fight against... Floyd Mayweather is gentle as compared against going up in a fight against Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali. Now, if you do develop late phase disease, the next choice available to you was developed in 1949, and it is still arsenic-based, although we no longer call it atoxyl. Mm -hmm. Melarsoprol is still the primary drug for late phase sleeping sickness. Unfortunately, it kills outright about 5% of the people who take it and still induces an encephalopathy or brain inflammation and swelling in 10% of people who take it. So let me rephrase. 10% of the people who take this drug are going to get brain swelling and half of those will just die. So you have to 
give Malarsoprol very carefully with good, good medical supervision. We also give it, Josh, with prednisolone or another steroid, if it's available, to actually reduce the possibility of the drug-induced encephalopathy. The reactive encephalopathy for Malarsoprol was about 18% in some studies. And so what you can do is if you see the encephalopathy starting, you can actually cut the treatment and then resume it very cautiously at lower doses. But the doctor or the nurse who's administering it has to be very watchful if there are any changes in the mental status of these patients. This is a drug who the treatments for the disease will kill you outright at right. At yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really dangerous. And Josh, this is one of the issues so, that we're having because it was called, as you said, a neglected tropical disease people stopped looking for a treatment. We went after the tsetse fly and we tried to like kill the vector and all these other kinds of things. But, you know, the drug discovery that we've had for things like cancer, for instance, this wave of drug discovery, or even for another infection like HIV or antibiotics, we have not had that at all for the majority of these neglected tropical diseases. You know, we've been sticking with treatments from the early 1900s. There was briefly another mm-hmm. drug developed known as Ornadil or Eflornithine. And that was also felt to be a safe mm-hmm. drug and certainly safer than right. Malarsoprol for late oh, yeah. stage disease. So um, I should note, Josh, so Go ahead. Uh, Eflornithine still available but not here in the States. You're about to say, I'm guessing, right? Eflornithine has been tested and been proven to work really well on Trypanosoma brucei gabiensis, but not on Rhodesiensis. You can still get a combo of eflornithine and nifertamox. It's only effective for the Gambian strain, which admittedly is not bad, given that that's more the Rip Van Winkle strain and not the one that kills you in weeks. But still much less effective than you would really like it to be. So the best prevention is really, you know, the same things you would do to avoid malaria or other bug-based diseases, which is long sleeves, insect repellent. But take heart in that even if you are bitten by a tsetse fly, there is only about a 0.7% chance that that fly is carrying the vector that you will become, that any individual will become infected by a bite. It's just that there are so many tsetse flies in these regions yeah, of Africa uh, that those numbers start it, to and, stack it, and that's part and parcel of what African public health has done to really hit this thing. You know, we've treated animals that have it. We've treated the humans. Massive efforts to actually wipe out the tsetse fly along the Serengeti, um, including like spraying campaigns to just kill them all. You know, just with like good population control and fly control, as long as there's no like major political upheavals in Africa, if we could kind of just keep up the fight, we may be able to actually eliminate this whole disease pretty much by taking care of the vector and treating the remaining infected population. Um, Because this thing doesn't have any kind of like long-term reservoir. There are still people who are looking for better and better treatments. We're hoping, hoping, hoping that the time we finish up our 80 plagues, um, this is actually a disease of historical note rather than something that's hitting like 20,000 people a year. And at least towards that end, in 2001, the World Health Organization reached an agreement with two pharmaceutical companies to provide sleeping sickness drugs free of charge for endemic countries. And with that, 
have to yawn and stretch. Which do you know that there's a word for that? Oh, Santos? I actually that actual uh, yawn I know, stretch combination. I know that there's pandiculation. It's pandiculation it. from the Latin root pandiculari to stretch oneself. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm pandiculating as we speak. Pandiculate away. That pretty much wraps it up for this session of eighty plagues <laughs> because there is just far too much pandiculating going on around here, but. From ancient Egypt to sub-Saharan Africa, and a brief stop in Victorian England in between. I think I I covered everywhere I wanted to travel. Santo, we do Victoria Falls. Don't know that we I, did. So, Have we talked about Zambia Zambi. before? <laughs> Zambia and Zimbabwe. That was it. It was Zambia. <laughs> There's no way to prove to our audience that this wasn't like recorded that little bit right there at 3 a.m. And you didn't call me and you're like, get back on Zencaster right away. <laughs> We're splicing this in. Travel to Botswana uh, when I was in residency to work in an HIV clinic. I, I have to say, um, Botswana is a welcoming and beautiful country um, with a really varied and rich uh, population. You have the Setswana, who are the majority tribal people, but you also have people who are out in the desert and and the Serengeti who follow by and large like their ancestral ways. It's absolutely an honor to, to meet all those people. If you get the chance, Botswana has beautiful control over the tsetse fly population and they do regular spraying. So the game reserves, which are in the inside of the country of Botswana, are well protected and very, very safe uh, for you to go into with you know any number of reputable safaris that can take you out and, uh, and show you the wild animals and the beautiful sights. Of course, kind of at the, the confluence of Zimbabwe and Botswana, you can find Victoria Falls. It's breathtaking. Um, if anybody out there has been to Niagara um, or you've seen any of the great falls out there, you'll just be completely blown away by Vic. There is also a small area at the top of Victoria <laughs> Falls that you can take a brief hike to known as the Devil's Pool that will let you swim uh, looking over what is certainly <laughs> a fatal yeah, drop. Is, you look like you to fall at any moment, but if you kind of take care of yourself. It's a beautiful site. Um, of course, anybody with any kind of fear of heights, stay the heck away from there. But even adoring Vic Falls um, from the bottom uh, and, and seeing the, the waterfall down is just a gorgeous thing. You're, you're helping their tourism industry, which is always a wonderful thing to do for the African continent and uh, the Serengeti specifically, because a lot of that money goes towards preserving uh, the Serengeti and the, the big five animals. So Serengeti yourself time. over there. Eat the food. Botswana, I should say, Josh, um, one of the country, one of the wonderful things about the country is the infrastructure is so good, you can drink the tap water just fine. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Uh, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do those are in the show notes, along with any sources we use to research this episode. Bye, guys. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Thank you. 
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.